Ophthalmology Off the Grid is a sister podcast to New Retina Radio. It is hosted by Dr. Gary Wartz, private practice cataract surgeon in Lexington, Kentucky, and Dr. Blake Williamson, also in private practice in Louisiana. Doctors Wartz and Williamson have been conducting interviews with anterior segment surgeons about the evolving realities of the COVID-19 crisis. Retina surgeons will find their conversation enlightening, especially when they discuss questions about how to manage staff layoffs, practice basic preventive measures, and stay informed of the latest news. We hope you find their conversation enlightening. Look for new episodes of New Retina Radio with more retina-centric discussions about COVID-19 in the coming days. For now, we'll leave it to Drs. Wartz and Williamson. Welcome back to Ophthalmology Off the Grid, COVID-19 Special Edition. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz. I also have Dr. Blake Williamson, my co-host, with me today again. And uh, we have two new special guests. So guys and gals, why don't we go ahead and introduce ourselves and then we'll get started. Okay. Uh, my name is Julie Schallhorn. I am cornea refractive surgery uveitist at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm also associate program director there, so I spend a lot of time with the residents. My name is Dr. Carl Stonecipher. I'm at the University of North Carolina. Uh, I'm clinical uh, director of uh, the Laser Center in Greensboro, as well as I've got research physicians protocol, and I'm also medical director for several medical spas we have as well. Excellent. Blake, how are things going with you, buddy? Um, I know you just, a big announcement just came out today. Yeah, you know, I'm glad that we're doing this series uh, as frequently as we are because things are changing so rapidly. Um, uh, about uh, 15 minutes ago, the state of Louisiana was uh, put under shelter in place, um, which I know, you know, Julie uh, happened in California already. Um, it seems like that may be happening everywhere. But um, so basically, um, you know, we're not to leave our homes unless it's just absolutely necessary for food and pharmacy and things like that. We had planned to do a skeleton crew just for two days this week because we really do have some urgent uh, medical you know, patients that we do need to see. Maybe not quite emergent, but certainly medically necessary. And we're trying to even even re, you know, re, re, uh, refigure where we're going to put those people and what we're going to do. Uh, it seems to be changing uh, each day. Yeah. So just for a timestamp, today is uh, Sunday and that is that would make it March the 22nd. Uh, so whenever this goes out, just know that uh, this is Sunday when we're recording this. Um, considering how the disease is spreading, what we'd like to cover today is really all about disease prevention. How do we prevent ourselves, our family members, our work family from getting this? Um, and Carl, you've got a little presentation that you'd like to go through that you've created about some of these tips. Uh, would you mind giving us a little, um, a little opening statement on that? And then I'll try to get the slides up. We can go through that. Yeah, so I want to dovetail into what Blake just said. So I just did a video on Tuesday of this week for CRST telling everybody how we are dealing with this problem. On Tuesday, we had 23 cases in the great state of North Carolina. We're now up to 283. We had essentially zero in Guilford County. We're now up to 11. So it's changing rapidly, and that's why I'm thankful you guys are doing this and letting me be a part of it. I think that, that Blake, I was just talking to one of the epidemiologists in North, uh, New Orleans. You guys are a, a special center. Uh, they're sending several hundred uh, tests, uh, trying to get more and more tests to you guys, maybe several thousand tests, not sure what the number is because they're so limited, uh, trying to test more and more people to get a real hold on what it is. And, and your great state is now 
on lockdown. I don't think we're very far behind. But what I was talking about last week was what do we do in the office? You know, do we check temperatures for patients? Do we do whatever? Well, this week we don't even have staff anymore. We have laid off all of our staff all across America uh, for uh, TLC. Uh, we are doing that for a smart reason. It's it's allowing those people to get um, you know benefits, uh, unemployment, that sort of thing. Uh, My Eye Doctor, which is another one, large one, they have laid off. Uh, everybody. So we really don't have an ophthalmology or an optometry group going now. We have a lot of small groups that are doing uh, what Blake was referring to is emergency medicine. Uh, we're talking about how we're doing emergency surgery in terms of what do we do at the surgery center. What we're going to do is make sure that all of our staff are equipped and ready at the surgery center. We're doing ACLS tomorrow um, to try and make sure everybody's up to date because our ambulatory surgery center may become a center that takes care of some of these patients. I just got off the phone uh, with a friend of mine in Italy. Uh, they are telling us we did it wrong, so please try and do it right. Uh, people aren't taking this seriously. Uh, we've gotta really think about how to be smart about this. Tell our loved ones this is not a drill, it's real. Um, and you're getting so many different varied you know, responses right now. So right now, Blake's similar to us. We don't have an office staff, they're gone. We're still maintaining our, our surgery staff right now because we're thinking we may be called out for that. And I know Julie hopefully is going to talk to us a little bit about how that's happening in San Francisco and what the call to action is uh, with regards to the residents and the residency programs. But in the community, I said, I think, you know, we're going to be uh, first line responders. Yeah. So there's always a better way to do it. Find it. Okay. So things like this, us talking to each other, we were on a phone call yesterday uh, between 50 and 60 doctors. Uh, it was pretty depressing. I know Gary, you were on that call. Blake, were you on that? Were you on that call yesterday or no? It it was uh, it was pretty depressing. So much so that after an hour and a half, most of us said, "Can we table it and restart again?" And we're we're forward in what we're trying to do as an ophthalmology community. So this was today. I'm trying to be you know serious about this. Remind your family. Remind your friends. This is serious stuff. It's not a drill. It's real for the next 60 seconds. This is like the tornado warning, not the tornado watch. So if we looked at these numbers last week, we've got a logmar of over 10 right now. Now, the good news is 81 to 83% of the patients are recovering. But what's happened to those other patients? Well, a lot of them are getting better, but you know, a large majority, or what I would consider a large majority compared to the regular flu is, is three to 4% are dying. And, and Italy will tell you, I'm not trying to throw a country under the bus, but they say we, we didn't do it well. The English are, were trying to do what's called herd immunity. So the young people out there don't understand that. The old people will get it. What herd immunity was in the old days when I was young and a little girl got uh, chicken pox, they brought all the little girls over so that they get chicken pox in the same community at the same time. They had sleepovers. And then that way, when you turned 21, 24, 26, and you were getting pregnant, then basically you didn't have to worry about the chickenpox virus. They tried that. The epidemiologist suggested that. It didn't go over well in the UK because now they're looking at the same situation as Italy. And these people I talked to from the epicenters, now people, they're out of innovators. They're, they've got 
you know, the ERs are full. The EMS, the service that, that answers the phone calls, what would be 911 here, is getting 21 calls per minute. Uh, sorry about that Debbie Downer stuff, but let's talk about tips, okay? This is what I'm talking. I'm calling my family. I'm calling my friends all over the world and the country and saying, okay, this is what you can do. First, pray, meditate, laugh, do yoga, sleep. That's essential. You know, you've got your chance, I say, with your family. Now, you may not love your family, but learn to love your family. Spend time with them. Laugh with them. You can play with them because you're not going anywhere for probably at least six weeks. Uh, we're probably looking somewhere June, uh, July. But a sabbatical is what I call an extended period of leave from one's customary work. So we're all on sabbatical now. We're, we're considered non-essential right now because cataract surgery is not essential like, say, a gynecologist or an orthopedic surgeon or a general surgeon because they're still doing what? They're doing appendectomies and they're having deliveries in this sort. But I think that a lot of us may be called to action and we need to be ready for that. So things coming. I want to tell you, uh, we, we, we have, you know, educating our staff, and I think this is smart. So get your staff prepared in case we need to be called into action. So we're doing ACLS tomorrow at the surgery center, making sure everybody's up to date just in case we had to go there. We have anesthetists, anesthesiologists, you know, we're hoping that we don't need to go there, but let's be ready for that. Refractor, you know, take the time to, to online. You don't have to be in the house. You can do stuff like Zoom or go to meeting and teach people how to refract so that you're keeping this, our staff that we laid off or like my family. So we laid off my cataract office, which is Piedmont. And then we had to lay off my refractive office, which is a TLC center. And, you know, that's like losing family. I mean, maybe these people I've worked with for 20 years or more. And then we're doing cooperation. So Alcon, Allergan. Uh, TLC, to name a few, are putting together webinars and live uh, recordings. And, and these are going to take the place of what? ASCRS or OSN. I was still kind of laughing last week. I said, I'm, I'm not coming to OSN like I told you in February. They said, well, we moved the meeting to Rome. Well, last I checked, I sent them an email. You know, I can get from Milan to Rome by horseback in two days. So that's kind of scary. Hey, Carl, can I ask you a question about that real quick? Please. Uh, uh, this is the staff part. So you said you laid off the staff. Uh, what do you mean by that? Because I know there's a different federal responses and, and different things that they can do uh, under the FMLA Act or, or, or other acts. You know, how, how are you, are you furloughing them or what exactly are you doing to, to, to take care of them over the next uh, couple months? Great question. Uh, our HR department the call we were on was a, a, a Southern California attorney yesterday, and then I talked to TLC's uh, medical director and talked about what their HR department was saying. They say it's probably better to fire your staff um, because they can get uh, unemployment that way. I know that sounds really harsh and cold, um, but, but you know we're telling them, hey, this is temporary. We've had SARS. We've had other outbreaks. Uh, we had the Hanna virus in the 1500s that killed a bunch of Londoners. You know, King Henry VIII got through that. So this is not the first time this has happened. But I think for the most part, what we're saying to the staff is we love you, your family. We'll help you as best we can. And just to divert on a side on that, because it's a great point, if your staff, and you have to let them go because we don't know how long this is going to last, if you talk to your staff, they are paycheck to paycheck. The majority of our staff are paycheck to paycheck. And a lot of them don't have emergency funds. And they're looking at us like what we do. Well, Dick Lindstrom, some of the legal legals yesterday on the call, were making good comments. The banks, I just talked to one of the leaders of the banks at Chicago yesterday. 
He said, look, Carl, we're not going to come foreclose on your house. This is unusual. But try and do what's called slow pay. So if Carl has a $1,000 mortgage a month, then maybe pay the interest, 100 bucks or something. Don't pay the whole thing. And, and make sense of how you're going to get through probably to July 1st. Hopefully that's a bad case scenario. As you guys know, Las Vegas shut down till May 1st so far until further notice. So if these guys are losing a billion dollars or more a day, they've closed the city. Now, one thing to go back to the slide, social isolation doesn't mean this, okay? So you'll laugh at my golf course right now. Yesterday, it was packed. So social isolation is you have a golf cart, Julie Blake, you've got a golf cart, and Gary, you've got a golf cart, so we're not the same golf cart. That's not social isolation. You don't touch the flag stick because there's a little plastic sponge thing in it that doesn't let your ball go in there, and there's no rake, so you don't have to rake the traps. But for me, that's not social isolation. If we look at any country that has done well, it's the Koreans. And so the South Koreans have basically stopped the subways. They're testing everyone. They're isolating. They wear masks. The Asians do exceptionally well with this concept. The Singapore people are totally going indoors because that's the only way we're going to get this in a downward spiral, so to speak. So instead of this upward trend that we're seeing with all these graphs, if we can finally get over the hump. So for example, when we let out school here in North Carolina, what did everybody do? Like what you would have done and I would have done. We all went to the bars until two o'clock in the morning. We still went to the beach. We're telling the kids now we're closing the beach, the bars are closed. So we're like you, Blake, and shut down in my city. There's no um, food services open at all. Next slide. So this is my new food pyramid. Thank you, Gary Wartz. I didn't have a chance to label everything. Kidney beans, Gary, you wanna make a comment on that so I'm not the only talker? <laughs> so I know this sounds crazy, but I've gone down some serious rabbit holes uh, with my research on this. And you know, from what I've, what I've learned is this COVID-19 virus really blocks the early induction of interferon gamma. Um, that's why a lot of folks are highly infectious without feeling any symptoms. It's, it's a lot of times our cytokines that make us feel bad while they're trying to fight off the infection. So in, in younger kids, it, for some reason, that doesn't happen. Their interferon gamma response happens very quickly. They have a shorter window of time when they're infectious. They get over this very quickly. But for some reason, this, this um, because I think of the Th1 to Th2 shift in, in the elderly, um, or even folks who are you know, 40 plus, 50 plus, uh, we don't have the same immune response. So what happens, the virus is replicating unchecked, interferon gamma isn't there to stop that uh, rep viral replication. And it's not until we get a huge viral load that our um, TH1 system kicks in and it kicks in overdrive because it sort of wakes up and you get this overabundant response from your immune system. Um, so that then you get into this situation of a cytokine storm where your where your body is actually causing ARDS and inflammation in your in your lungs, and that ends up becoming more of a problem perhaps than the virus in the in the first place. So, if you can induce your interferon gamma sooner, there's a at least theoretical chance. And again, this is sort of pseudoscience. I'm not trying to say there's a you know double blind randomized control study showing this, but Red kidney beans, cooked, because if you eat them raw, they're sort of toxic, so you got to cook them. But they have, phyto, they have phytohemagglutinin, which is a very powerful and known 
um, in, you know, inducer of interferon gamma. And, and it's actually, there's, there's a lot of research on this. You can go out and, and look it up. Also, sprouted mung beans have also shown some really incredible um, antiviral effects, actually, um, you know, you know, equivalent to acyclovir in terms of treating uh, herpes simplex virus in some literature I've read. So there are some nutritional things that we can do. Again, this is a little on the, on the pseudoscience side of things I don't really like, but, you know, eating beans, um, you know, you may not be popular but with your family, but maybe that will also help the social isolation part of this. So this is why everyone stocked up on all the toilet paper then, right? That's it. Yes. <laughs> the beans. Exactly. So, so let's go through the food pyramid and this is not a joke. I'm going to go through these individually. So vitamins, D, zinc, uh, complex vitamins, most of what you guys got C, we'll go through that a little bit more. Uh, tonic water, about 83 milligrams per liter is a, is what you'll get about 200 milligrams per week is what you kind of need as a therapeutic quinine kind of dose. Now, we can't make the run on Plaquenil. That little thing you see is my Mexican azithromycin that I brought back from Mexico for my wife who has bad asthma, and so I always keep it kind of on hand when she needs it. Zinc has been shown good. Uh, the moonshine is real. Uh, the moonshine is there just to kind of show you that Regular alcohol is not powerful enough. So if you really run out of things that are, you know, potentially sterile items, you got to have Everclear or something stronger to get there. Okay, hot liquids. Okay, so these are simple things that we can do to eliminate the virus from the mouth. Coffee, tea, soup, even warm water with, with uh, salt in it can help wash out your mouth and mucous membranes. Remember, the virus can live in your throat for up to three days. So the most important thing here is you want to wash it out, swallow it. Why do you want to swallow it? Because the acids in your stomach will kill it. You want to get in the showers, wash your face, wash your mucous membranes, get in the shower, wash the back of your throat out, those kind of things. And we'll go through that next. Gargle often. If you don't have, and I don't want to get a run on betadine here, but those of us that are in the front line that may be going to see a COVID patient or a COVID positive patient, basically what you could theoretically do, and this is what they did in Singapore uh, when they had the original SARS outbreak, was they gave everybody betadine gargle mouthwash. I looked online, not really available, but you could take a few drops of betadine, gargle with that. They use it in the dental world so it doesn't stain your teeth. So like if you're getting ready to have dental surgery, They'll have you gargle with betadine, just dilute betadine. Don't go crazy here. And then basically, you could swab the inside of your nose before you go in. And then when you get out, take off your clothes when you get home. Take off your clothes when you're at the hospital. Change your scrubs. Take a shower. Wash it out. Wash your mouth out with warm water, some kind of antiseptic. But betadine has antivirucidal activity as well. All right, so this is the studies that are out there from infectious disease therapy. And basically, they're looking at how POVO iodine will work. And we're going to make these, if, we're, if we end up doing this as a podcast and it's all verbal, uh, voice-related, what we'll do is somehow make these available through CRST, right, Gary? Or we'll do somehow. Yeah, we'll put the notes. I'm gonna, I'm, this was just put together pretty quickly, so I'm going to kind of add to some of the science that I've been working on since late last night. Uh, but these are things that have been done 
with the SARS virus and, and they've worked. Carl, can I ask you a question? Please. Uh, is there any evidence for uh, things like Listerine or chlorhexidine mouthwashes, or is it really just the betadine that works? So, so basically the Listerine and the chlorhexidine are gonna wash your mouth out. You don't want it cold. You'd rather have it warm for cold liquids aren't as good as warm liquids. So primarily that's kind of opening up your mucous membranes to allow that to get washed out. But I think for the most part, yes, if you don't have those, that's why you saw in my food pyramid, Listerine I think is the second best bet if there's no betadine left on the shelf. And let me say something about that for a moment. We have plenty of gas, we have plenty of food. My Italian friend made the comment, because she's older, she said, Carl, there's this eerie silence here. He said, but the good thing is, this isn't like it was in World War II, when we were coming out from the shelters and our, our surfaces were bombed. We're coming out and it's a pretty serene world out there. So my point is, don't go run to the store, they're restocking the shelves. Hey, Carl. Yeah. Hey, you you glitched out for a second. Um, you, I I think I heard you say that you know the 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 Italians when they came out from World War II, it was sort of a a nice uh, you know after World War II everything was bombed and then you know now we come out and it's nice and serene and we don't need to ru make a run in the store. Is that a good summary? Absolutely, that was okay. a perfect summary. Okay. And then last but not least, the virus can live on metal surfaces, but they can also live on cardboard and plastic. So up to nine days. So whatever you bring home, yeah, they're saying they're cleaning it in the store, but go ahead and wash it off. So last night I made a store run. I didn't go crazy. I got some kidney beans because they were on sale, two for one. Nobody knows the kidney bean story, I guess. Yet. That's right. You heard it here first. I came home, my, my daughter and I cleaned off everything. We opened up like oatmeal and dumped it out and threw away the boxes. I didn't let my wife do that because my wife's a bad asthmatic and now is this time where we have seasonal allergies in the whole bit. And so we just left her in the other room, social isolated, and we, we unpacked the grocery, so to speak. Handrails, door handles, shopping carts, disinfect, disinfect, disinfect. So when I was in the grocery store yesterday, I was wearing my scrubs and my hospital badge, which was kind of humorous because everybody was distancing from me. And I was in my little social isolated bubble, uh, but uh, I didn't have a mask on or anything, but they had disinfectant wipes available. Uh, the, the cash registers were using disinfecting wipes. Just be smart when you look around what doors you touch, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Okay, don't smoke, don't vape, don't smoke pot. Come on, Carl. <laughs> the people that aren't doing well are these people. So if you look at the countries that are having problems, and I think the first person that kind of pointed it out to me before the Italians are brought it up was Keith Walters. Yeah. And if you look at these countries in these states that are affected majorly, first and foremost, they're major entry points. So LAX, San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, New York, Atlanta, those are the epicenters. Why? Because that's where all the big airports are. That's where people are coming from other countries and carrying this virus in. But at the same time, some of these states are more prone like Colorado or Washington State or California. I'm not denigrating them. I don't care if you smoke pot. I don't care what you do, but just don't do it now because that compromises your lungs. And now's a good time to quit. You're socially isolated. I do have to pipe in and say that, you know, we're, we're, we are in, uh, you know, limit outdoor activities right now, um, shelter in place uh, for the entire state of California. But the uh, marijuana dispensaries have been considered essential businesses and do remain open here in California. Priorities. Uh, hey, we all have our we priorities. We should possibly tell people to prioritize right. the edibles.
That's right. Well, edibles. I would say that edibles, if you're going to go there and you need that to help you sleep at night, definitely. Asthma, immunocompromised, older patients, stay at home. Please stay at home. So let me tell you, my wife, I already told you, she's about to go stir crazy because I won't let her go anywhere. My uh, little niece up the road, I said, hey, you're immunocompromised. Be smart. You're 16. Don't be dumb here. You don't have the same system that maybe I do. You know, work out, do what you can. My 90-year-old father-in-law, who I begged, stay at home. I got my sister-in-law to go take groceries and stuff over to him. Yesterday, decided I'm going to go to the grocery store and to the pharmacy. He's the guy that's going to get it and die. So tell your parents, this is not a drill, it's real. Wash your hands frequently. Any soap that bubbles or foam is good. I get it, the shelves don't have any more Perel. You don't have to have Perel. It's helpful. It's nice when you're out in the world, but if you don't have it, just use soap and water. Eat, sleep, be healthy. Vitamin D, zinc, C are good stuff, but sleep, okay? You got to get sleep, and I know you guys are going to be stressed. That's why I say there's a bunch of online yoga meditation apps. I think those are great. Uh, I think you can turn on a little Rain at night from YouTube or whatever helps you sleep, fan with noise or whatever, but just make sure you take good care of yourselves because we all know that's the simple stuff to keep us healthy. And I tell everybody exercise. It was kind of funny in the 1500s. They think it was a hantavirus that created this sweat sickness that killed a lot of Londoners. And what the, the, the doctors didn't do well was they bloodlet everybody, but what they did do well was encourage people to exercise vigorously because they felt like exercise and making you sweat helped get this out. I still do believe us getting our temperature, our bodies up, exercise is good. Pets can carry the disease, but according to current research, they don't transmit it, okay? So, you know, Fido's still okay. Now, we probably think that China, this originated in bats, and then there's this thing that kind of looks like an anteater, and I don't know if you guys spoke in China, but I've spoke a lot in China, and they eat a lot of different things that you and I don't eat, so I'm sure that that may have been one of the vectoral sources. The marketplaces are full of a lot of different unique things that you and I aren't used to eating, and so I think that is probably where the channel came from, but, but don't be afraid of Fido. Avoid the flu. It's still out there. Also, season allergies out there. Our trees are blooming. It's beautiful. If you take a walk and you start sneezing, don't panic. It may be a it may not be the virus. It may be an allergy. So do what you do. If you're an allergic person and you take Claritin for your allergies and you think, oh my gosh, I'm sneezing, coughing, you can run a fever, as you know. You can get diarrhea, as you know, with allergies. So don't panic. But if you run a consistent fever, I tell you to go to one of the screening clinics. So what do we do? If you get a sore throat, repeat the above. Check your temperature frequently. Isolate yourself from the other people. If you can, get tested. So my fellow, I think I was telling Gary this earlier, uh, who's been gone on the road for about 14 days, she um, was up in the great state of New York, and she's been on the, you know what, trying to get a job to her. Well, she got a temperature. So on Tuesday, she was smart enough because she worked in, you know, the UNC department as well as comes and visits me over in Greensboro and went in to get her test. Took them 72 hours before she was able to get a result. So what does she do? She's staying at her parents' house. She's contacted with her parents. She's contacted with other people. She's saying, look, I got a fever and I'm a high-risk person. You might want to go get a test. She was tested on Tuesday. By Wednesday, there were no tests left. 
So I just spoke with some of the community leaders in Oklahoma City yesterday. There are no tests left in some of these cities. That's why, Blake, they're now taking a lot of these tests and trying to show, hey, what is the real incidence in New Orleans? Maybe we can get a grip on what's it, what's it really like in terms of the populace right now. I tell the best example, the NBA players, they had enough money, obviously, to buy tests, and they've got a lot of money in these players. But what's so scary about those NBA players is the majority of them were what? Asymptomatic. So the healthy people, like I said at the beginning, 83% of the people don't do what? They do well. They kind of get these flu symptoms and they move on. Another thing that's just come out of South Korea and China, as well as Germany, they've reported that a lot of the people, the first thing to go is the loss of sense of smell. So that may be a marker. I'm not saying that's a huge thing, but that's a new finding that's just come out in the last few days. One, one question here real quick, sure. Carl. Um, you know, testing, that, that's sort of an interesting conundrum that we're facing right now, because if we don't have enough tests, then we can't figure out the asymptomatic spreaders that are out there. And that is part of the problem. So we either have to do, you know, very, very wide disease survey of people, of everyone, symptomatic, asymptomatic, to figure out who the folks are who should really be isolating themselves, or, and, or at some point, we're going to have to have um, serum tests like IgG tests to see who had the disease and is no longer susceptible. And that could be a good thing to help get our economy going because those folks, at least we think, hopefully, once you have, have had it, um, you won't be able to get it again. There's some evidence in, in uh, non-human primates that once they've had this, once re-challenged, they don't get reinfected. Oh, I, I think it's true. Yeah. So I think that's... Yeah. I can tell you that there are, a lot, there are a lot of groups out there, including at UCSF, that are working very hard on uh, finding a serologic test for this. Um, pretty much anybody who has been doing disease surveillance research anywhere in the world has, you know, including the Proctor Foundation, where I'm at, at UCSF, which is you know, dedicated to you know, international infectious causes of blindness, um, has, has immediately refocused efforts on uh, uh, looking for a serologic test for this disease. So I am hopeful that that will bear fruition uh, very, very soon. Cause I, I agree that is going to be immensely informative to know um, if you have had the test before or if you, if you have had the virus before and then also going along with that, which we still don't totally know is if you can develop an immunity to this, right? If getting it conveys immunity. Right. But you know, the biggest thing is it's a SARS virus. So I think that we're, we're going to see it doing similar things to SARS, Julie, I hope. Um, we don't know that 100%. It's similar. I think the thing that we have to understand, though, say, for example, vaccination, vaccines, okay? We know vaccines work, right? We've been through that before, but only 50% of the millennials are vaccinated. So we've got to convey to this group that, hey, vaccines work, number one. Number two, they were working on a vaccine for a coronavirus three years ago, but the company ran out of money trying to do the FDA trials. So I think that we've got to kind of to maybe if this is the tipping point, hey, is it a good tipping point that maybe this now our government will say, like they did in Singapore, let's figure out a way for every human being to get betadine mouthwash and at least be using betadine mouthwash to help the prevention and the spread. Let's figure out a way where everybody has an N95 mask uh, and, and supplies that. And I'm not trying to tell you to go buy stock in any of these companies, but I'm just saying, I think this is a tipping point that hopefully prevention, and, and this is not a socialized medicine platform, don't say that. I'm just trying to say is maybe if we can get together in group, 
and, and agree. But just like I told you with the HR people, Blake, the other day, the, there were three excellent <laughs> lawyers in the room that they couldn't agree. So you can only imagine what the epidemiologists are doing. So be safe, be smart, protect those you love. Julie, I was telling earlier, I know that the, 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 the audience didn't hear, uh, Zaina at Baylor just had to recruit her ophthalmology uh, residents because the uh, ICU residents, uh, one of them had tested positive, so they're now in quarantine and isolation. So maybe that's a good segue to go. Tell us about San Francisco. Yeah, so you know we here in San Francisco, um, you know we've been on shelter in place now for uh, for seven days. We started this past Monday. Um, the both San Francisco and the six surrounding Bay Area counties. So we went as a region onto shelter in place. Um, over that time, there have been a lot of changes, um, a lot of, of preparations at, at, at the medical center at UCSF and, and just, I think, in the community. Um, during this time, let's see here, at UCSF, we have uh, reactivated a old, um, unused floor of the hospital and made it entirely a negative pressure ward. And then we also have another hospital here in the city, which uh, a small portion of it is used as a short stay unit for the, the ASC uh, that I work out of. But we have opened that back up and are converting it into an ICU um, in preparation for a surge of patients. Um, the effort has been being coordinated on a citywide level. So the CEOs from all the major hospital networks and hospitals are, are meeting to, to, to really make this a coordinated response. Um, what, um, you know, is becoming clear as this progresses, you know, USC or UCSF right now has about a two week stockpile of, of personal protective equipment, but, um, nobody's shipping it. So we can't replenish it. So we have become increasingly, um, concerned as has the rest of the country about the, the supply of personal protective equipment. And, and we really hope that, uh, production of that, you know, kicks up soon because otherwise, uh, you know, we're going to be having our healthcare providers, you know, all of us are going to be exposing ourselves and exposing our families and whoever else we live with to this virus just because we can't get our production in, in order, which is, you know, pretty, pretty dismaying. Hey, one of these things, Julie, that you may think about in terms of the big picture, uh, Marcia brought it up. Uh, N95 masks are, are also the same things that we work when we're working with wood. Yep. So we're, you know, the Lowe's stores, the woodworking stores, maybe your, your husband's a woodworker, your wife's a woodworker. And so my point is, you might think about if you happen to have one of those, they're, they're readily cleanable. Um, I know everybody's hoarded them and they're gone. But I think that maybe if we can look at our buddies around the the office or around somewhere say, hey, does your husband or wife happen to have one of these devices that we can get that sure would be helpful too. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, the people that have hoarded them and the, and the major construction companies, you know, to donate them to, to medical centers. I know here in San Francisco, there's been a donation point set up for, for that type of stuff. And we've been quite fortunate. A lot of the major construction companies in the city, um, although there's some, some construction projects are still going on, but a lot of them have cut us fund down, have donated their masks. And I think we've, we've gotten quite a, a substantial number of N95 respirators that way, um, which, which is good. But, you know, those, those masks, if you just have them on your shelf at home, you know, keep a couple of them for your family if you want, so you feel safe, but donate the rest of them to, to a medical center because the people in the ICUs and the people that are screening these patients really need them and they, they really need to be protected. 
Um, now, curiously, do you guys have access to taking a shower at the hospital? We definitely, definitely, definitely do. Oh, and, yeah. and take your, your scrubs off and change them mm-hmm. and do all that? Because I think that's a smart thing maybe to do when you leave the hospital and wash again when you get home. Mm-hmm. If, I got to tell you a story, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying, I'm trying to make this light as I can. But one of my office workers came home the other day because I told her this spiel. I said, you know, go home, take all your clothes off, throw them in the washer. So she goes home, takes all her clothes off, and the husband sees her walking through the house thinking, hey, we're going to get lucky tonight. (laughs) I'm going to take a shower to be away from you. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah. I I have a question along these lines, Julie. Um, uh, You know, so I have one N95 mask. Because I was thinking, if I have to go in and see a COVID-positive patient at my center, I should probably have one for myself. Um, I know there's been some talk about what to do after you've seen that patient. So the scenario is you go in, you have an N95, it's the only one you have, um, and maybe you're seeing another one right after that. You know, can I, I mean, I know there's like, is there anything that I can readily, that's readily accessible that I can do to sort of disinfect it? Or do I even need to, if that patient doesn't cough or have any, you know, air, uh, aerosol secretions or what's the, what's the teaching there? Those are all really, really good questions. And I, I think the answer is that there are, there are some approaches you can take. All of them are, are suboptimal to just having another mask, which would be the ideal circumstance. But uh, what a lot of people are doing uh, in a setting with these limited N95 masks are wearing a surgical mask over the top of the N95 to um, kind of like, you know, or, or if you have a face shield, um, which are also in short supply, wearing a face shield, which will protect the mask from getting any droplets like splatter. And then at the end of the day, you can take off, discard the, the, the surgical mask and the N95 mask is still okay underneath. There's also been reports of people, um, you know, hand sanitizing the exterior of the mask as well to try and to try and kill any of the the viral particles that way, um, which probably would work. I, I honestly don't know what it does to the effectiveness of the N95 filter, and I don't I don't know if anybody really truly knows that. There was a study recently that said that the the virus can remain aerosolized, so it can stay in the mm-hmm. transmit. That was out of Germany, and primarily um, Blake. I think the things what she said is absolutely 100% beautiful. Uh, but we don't really know. I don't know. I mean, I, me disinfectant, maybe with a wipe or some kind of disinfectant. Yeah. So I guess the best thing that we could do then is, is if you have an N95, wear it, uh, perhaps put a mask over that. And then, you know, in between patients or at the, when you're done, cause you're only seeing emergencies as an ophthalmologist. We're speaking about ophthalmologists here, not people working on these wards. And then afterwards, perhaps wipe it down, uh, or like a Lysol or something like that. Yeah. I think um, that's, that's a good approach. Here. Hey, and Blake, one other thing that when we get people with conjunctivities now, we're uh, recommending that you treat those with telemedicine. So, you know, this may be the time when we break the rule and give them an antibiotic uh, as a prophylactic uh, because Zergan is, I tried to get Zergan the other day. It's impossible to find. I went to like 23 different stores uh, with one of my uh, son's friends who had a bad EKC in Dallas. So the moral of the story is this is one of those ones where you don't want to go see the, vi- the viral conjunctivitis because you are going to know within two to three days where that person's going, whether they're going to have a fever and go on to COVID or whether they're, I mean, this is where I don't feel uncomfortable as an ophthalmologist saying, let's give them antibiotic. Julie, your comments? Yeah, I think I think that's very reasonable. You know, we are, we are trying to switch over as many of our patients to telemedicine as possible. And certainly things like conjunctivitis uh, go into that. Obviously, you know, it's 
you're impossible to do a full ophthalmic exam, but you can get a pretty good idea from a video chat, you know, is the cornea clear or is it not clear, at least, you know, grossly? Um, is the eye red and inflamed? Is it red and inflamed under the lids or is it just on the bulbar conge? And I think in that setting, you know, treating, you know, presumptively for a bacterial conjunctivitis is, is totally the right thing to do. I think the thing that we do have to remember is though, all, it's uncommon, but conjunctivitis is a presenting sign uh, for COVID-19 and um, uh, PCR swabs have, have resulted, you know, positive from, from these patients. So um, you, you have to treat potential conjunctivitis as potential COVID-19 patients. Um, if they do end up coming to your clinic, at least in our clinic, you know, they're, they're going into respiratory isolation. So Julie, right. what are you using for telemedicine? Oh, we, we, have, we, uh, we have a Zoom platform okay. for telemedicine. So we're using Zoom for it. I have actually, so tomorrow is my first day. I, I switched about a third of my patients um, over to telemedicine for tomorrow, you know, kind of high acuity patients that, um, you know, some of them maybe need a little bit more handholding and just want to be, you know, I want to be there to talk to them. And some of them, you know, I, I just kind of want to get a sense as how they're, as how they're doing and, and to know whether or not I need to bring them in or not. Um, so I'll let you know how it goes, but it's, 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 it's a new world. So Gary or, or Julie, what I, I'm a, not a zoomer yet. Can you kind of tell me, is it hard to do? Uh, well, I think that, uh, zoom is something. And first of all, I have to just say, um, kudos to zoom for donating their platform to every single kid that's out there trying to finish their school. I've got a daughter in college and a son who's a junior in high school, both of them are, you know, trying to figure out how to learn from a distance while we're all trying to treat patients from a distance. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm learning Zoom. I'm loving it. It's great. Honestly, when you talk about being healthy, part of that is, is feeling that social interaction. And honestly, it's just so nice to see your all's faces, to talk with you, to feel like we're connected through this shared experience. Um, I, was, I was watching church this morning from TV and, and the, guy, the guy said, you know, we're, we're all going through this together, but we're not all in the same boat. Uh, and I thought it was very interesting, to, but, but we are all going through it together. And I think that that's, that's really important. But I've really loved Zoom. It's, it's, it's not too hard to learn. Um, you know, learning it on the fly, there's a ton of tutorials and YouTube and other things can, can show you how to do it. J Julie, any thoughts? I, I totally agree. It's, I think it's actually a wonderful platform for you know, either, you know, a two-person conference or even like a multi-person conference. You know, we've had, we've had our entire department on there. You know, we, we started doing weekly um, staff meetings to um, both with the university and within our department to kind of like update our protocols and discuss, troubleshoot, how are things going, um, you know, redistribute manpower. And um, it's just, it's just a wonderful platform for that. And, you know, I've, I've had my family on there to talk to them you know, also FaceTime, you can do group FaceTime with, you know, with my family. I mean, it's, it's, I'm just, I'm so thankful for it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really been a, been they a actually favor. did the screen mirror and put my son on TV because he's stuck in Dallas right now at school, Gary, doing the same thing your kids are doing. And we're just like, we're watching you on TV. This is better than Netflix. So, you know, it, it's, I mean, you can play the games. The kids love it. It's hilarious. Hey, uh, Julie, real quick. I, before we sort of uh, wrap up, I would love to hear how is this impacting Ural's academic center? I know that you're involved with the residents and um, it's possible that the residents are gonna be taken away from the ophthalmology duties. Can you walk me through a little bit about wh where you think this is heading in your center and how it's disrupted things? Yeah, so I mean, it's, I mean as, 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 as it has been in the rest of the country, it's been a, a completely massive disruption um, you know, our clinical practice is, is really shut down except for those, um, you know, essential 
uh, uncontrolled, you know, critical patients that we're still continuing to see. Um, all of our surgeries have essentially been shut down. We've adopted the Medicare, um, uh, you know, guidelines one, two, three versus, you know, elective, you know, semi-urgent and then urgent. Um, and, you know, we're really only doing, you know, stage three cases right now in the medical center. Um, our, uh, we have organized ourselves and our residents into teams. And we have, uh, each team has a different day of the week. So, and each team has a different uh, subspecialty attending. So, for example, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm cornea. I, on Monday, I have a retina person that's all there with me, a plastics person that's there with me, a glaucoma person that's there with me, and a comprehensive person. And we basically deal with all those patients on Monday. Tuesday's a different team. Wednesday's a different team. It works because we're a large academic center. That's hugely uh, important. Yeah. If one of because, you tests positive, you're done. That's Exactly. Because if one of us tests positive, we knock out everybody else that we've interacted with that day. So we are really trying to conserve uh, our, our spacing and not interacting. Um, probably the area where this is most critical is really with the residents because they tend to have the most interaction with each other on a daily basis and, and a weekly basis. So we've made all their signouts Zoom calls now. Um, we've assigned each of them to teams um, at, our, at our main hospital and then our VA hospital and our county hospital and um, have strict instructions for the teams to not cross. Um, so that if, you know, again, likewise, if one of our residents goes out, there are still other residents there to, to help and to see patients. Um, the medical center has not yet requested, we've, we've been put on notice that our, our residents uh, first and then ourselves may be redeployed um, in an in inpatient setting. Uh, they have guaranteed us that we will not be seeing ICU patients, which is, I think, good for everybody. We will be the last people on call for the ICU, which I'm like, probably reasonable. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yet. Yet. But, um, <laughs> I love Gary's thing. He sent out, I think, Gary, you yeah. sent it out. It said, don't touch this. And they're talking about ventilator settings and all that sort of stuff is an optimum. But on a serious note, Julie, what's the, what is the hospital like? Is it in lockdown? Is do you guys it is ventilators left? You're, is yeah. the ED full of patients? Where so it's so it, the hospital is in lockdown. Um, basically, nobody can come out or go into the hospital. Not come out. People can come out, but nobody can go into the hospital. There's a there's a screening point outside where they're screening people for respiratory symptoms. Nobody can go into the hospital unless they're an employee who works in clinical care. So our research faculty are a different, you know, different question. Um, but no, who, an employee who works in, in patient care. Uh, patients can only come in if they're coming in to be admitted. There are no visitors allowed right now. Now, they, they've relaxed that for labor and delivery and in a pediatrics hospital. Um, a parent can visit and, and one person can be in labor and delivery when, when, uh, for, for the birth. But besides that, zero visitors in the hospital and the outpatient clinic. So if somebody comes in for an emergency visit with us, they, they cannot bring a, a visitor along at all. Um, right now, I, I, as of Friday or Saturday, I think we had 12 COVID patients in the hospital at UCSF, which is actually not that much. And we are not close to capacity yet. Because um, we, you know, at the same time, the, the hospital also over the past couple of weeks has really remarkably decreased the census and, 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 and to have that space available for COVID patients. So we are not, uh, right as of right now, in like crunch critical time, they're not redeploying our residents yet. Um, we are all, you know, it, 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 it's such a strange feeling um, being at the medical center and, and talking to people on the phone. It really feels like, you know, people are just preparing, preparing, preparing for a tornado to hit or the war to start. You know, it's right now it's just, there's this 
feeling of like being the calm before the storm um, and, and everybody's just holding their breath before things get bad. Well, I think if we can take these people and tell them, hey, this is real, it's not a drill, I think that's important. Uh, I just talked just on the psychiatry side to the head of psychiatry UNC ED, and she's not seeing it. I thought you'd see an influx of the people with mentally you know, ill disorders and that kind of stuff. And she said, surprisingly, we're not. She said, what's happened though is our mental illness departments are already full. There are, there are no beds in them. You know, we're having to just mm-hmm. somebody in them with the really psychiatric issues. But she said, now we're trying to figure out how do we put a, I don't know, a suicidal patient on a normal medical ward? You know, how do, how do we put that in place? So, so I think that a lot of people out there, and the one thing I want to say is, you know, politics aside, get rid of the politics. There's no red, there's no blue. We're all Americans and we're trying to get through this thing. So my point is, is support, support, support. So things like this, Gary and Blake, thank you very much for putting this stuff together because I think that we hopefully aren't giving out disinformation. I mean, you know, I know that, that we're trying to research it and, and tell what we can do and how we can do it, but I think the mental health of the world is kind of important too. Hey, I want to chime in. I know we got to kind of wrap up, but but you know this uh, the, the sort of the title or the theme of this off the grid was kind of about prevention. And and one of the things that uh, that we haven't talked about yet, perhaps uh, uh, you know both of you could comment on, uh, is, is Plaquenil. I mean, it's, I think it's important we mention it. A lot of people are on Plaquenil, also zinc, also also zithromycin. Uh, Carl, can you talk about what you're personally doing? Um, sure, I, I will cover that. Um, that's a hot topic right now. If you talk to ophthalmologists and anybody, so I am of the mindset that the Plaquenil people need the Plaquenil, and I'm not one of them. Uh, there are a lot of people that disagree, and they're grabbing Plaquenil for their family members and their friends. And azithromycin has activity too. So think of it this way: it's kind of like influenza and Tamiflu. So if you and I cohabitate together and you get sick and I take Tamiflu, I'm less likely to get it. Plaquenil is a great thing for somebody like Julie who's on the front line. So I would say give my Plaquenil to Julie because she's actually going maybe into the hospital. Lisa's son is our um, uh, one of our uh, co-workers. She's got call for the city of Greensboro. That's somebody that I would want to give my Plaquenil to so that when she goes in and sees potentially COVID infected patients that she's better covered. Because it's just like you and me going to a malaria country. That's kind of what you're doing is being prophylactic and preventive. But azithromycin as well, uh, Zithromax has some activity. Uh, The simple stuff like zinc and D are in pretty much ubiquitous supply. So I was trying to not stay away from it, but you're absolutely right. Plaquenil and, and, and azithromycin have shown activity. Um, the problem is when you get the real disease, we're talking about the 12% that, that go on into the critical phase where you get inspissation in the lungs, where you've got to somehow clear the lungs before you can actually treat the disease and get it there. You're talking about the antivirals and the heavy duty antivirals that, you know, I, I mean, I can start naming them off, but I mean, Gary or somebody else on the call may be able to better go through through the biologics of that than I. But I think that they are trying all the stops. They've said that steroids don't really work. Uh, so there's very much controversy surrounding whether you use steroids around these. So like my wife who gets steroids around her asthma, I mean, we're just, gee, that's just what, it's the time of year she gets her steroids. So again, that's another scary thing. But yes, Plaquenil and azithromycin are both great drugs for prophylaxis according to 
uh, previous uh, 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 interactions with SARS, which is a similar purpose. I think we should remember that most of the most of the data that came from SARS, though, it's all in vitro data. It was it was in a petri dish showing that it inhibited it. It although that that data looks very very promising. The the caveat is that we you know there's a lot of things that work well in petri dishes, and once you get them into the complex system that is the human body, have sometimes contradict you know contradictory effects and and can actually make things worse. There's a lot of clinical trials launching right now um, for you know for prophylaxis for treating people that are already very very sick with these drugs. Um, I really think that. Uh, we really need to see the results of those trials before you know we can recommend that they're good or they're bad or, or you know, or really or you know they may they may hurt. You know, we 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 just it's one of those things we just don't know. Um, I'm also in your boat. You know, I think that I you know the companies are ramping you know turning up the you know, turn on the faucets, ramping up their production of of, of a hydroxychloroquine. But uh, right now, you know, there are people that really truly need it to control real disease, um, the rheumatic disease. And there are patients in the hospital that have COVID-19 and need it too. So I have been advising people, and I myself am not taking it because I, I think that we need more data before we can really make a conclusion. Well, and Julie, the other thing is, you know, sometimes people laugh. I mean, we are real doctors, but you know, we don't get the maybe the the side effects of some of these drugs. And the the Plaquenil can prolong your, you know, a lot of things in terms of your heart rate, and you've got walk, and you can. Definitely. So, Plaquenil Plus is ithromycin, which also prolongs your QT yeah, interval. Yeah, so if you together. go and you give it to your 90-year-old father-in-law altruistically thinking, hey, I'm saving yeah. him from getting the disease, you may kill him on the other side of the coin. And it has, they have, the, 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 those two together also have a, a combination with a lot of other uh, medications on top of that. So any, anything that affects your QT interval already, uh, with if you give them um, a QT prolonging medication on top of that, it's, you're much more likely to go into... To having a problem. We are, you know, at least in the Department of Ophthalmology, we're launching a couple trials looking at um, just aerosol dispersion of, uh, of the coronavirus within um, what would be a normal kind of exam um, length, you know, six inches to eight inches um, that we're going to start implementing in um, the respiratory screening centers, which are the acute um, screening centers that um, people, uh, we've set up to, for people with coronavirus symptoms. So hopefully we will have a little bit of a better idea about how exposed ophthalmologists are to just the viral spread just from talking at a slit lamp um, soon. The, the other thing I'll mention is, um, you know, there's a, an, an article that's in, on Gravy's archives for clinical and experimental ophthalmology that we can link in the show notes. Um, but they actually recommended against using non-contact tonometry, air puff tonometry, because we know that the virus is, you know, can be in the tear film and you can aerosolize it and actually potentially um, cause an infection of the operator. So uh, that was one of the, the interesting recommendations I didn't even think about, but the air puff tonometry can actually cause spread potentially. So you've been up droplets. late at night reading Von Grafies, huh? That's that press, that press. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, got nothing else to do except talk to my buddies online and read uh, obscure journals. So I, I think that's about it. I'll, I, you know, Blake and you guys, thank you for letting us, I mean, I know Julie and I are good friends and we share the same kind of values. This is huge. I, I really appreciate you inviting me and letting us talk about these kind of things online. And, you know, maybe we come back and give you an update down the road because like Blake said at the very beginning, you're absolutely 100% right. It's a day-to-day -day change. Yeah, things are changing so rapidly, but it's so important to, to stay informed and stay connected.
Yeah, we want to thank everybody and, and thank you guys for tuning in. I think there was a lot of great stuff uh, brought up. Uh, telemedicine was one of those things, and we're going to have a, a show exclusively dedicated to telemedicine. We're going to bring on some guests that are actively doing it and have been doing it here in the United States for a while because I think this can be a practice savior. Um, we also have some shows uh, coming up with some administrators and, and people who can tell us what to do with staff. So a lot of great things that you know, both of our, our guests today brought up, brought up um, and we look forward to doing this uh, uh, again and again. So from, um, from Gary and I uh, and, and the team at BMC and Off the Grid, we appreciate you both coming on. Thank you.